Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Real Talk. It's Lucas here, and I hope that today's episode informs and inspires you to have your own real conversations. As always, today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Trivan, maker of trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at trivan.com. A huge thanks to them for sponsoring the show and making it possible. One other quick note before we get into today's episode is that if you are willing and able, if you could leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on any of the podcast networks or platforms that allow for it, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that will be much appreciated as it helps get the word out there and lets people know what we're all about. So with that in mind, on to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Real Talk Podcast. Uh, we are back today for another episode with a uh, familiar face, starting to become quite a familiar face around here, Pastor Jim Wittemine. Uh He was a guest earlier on in the show, and then we recently had him back on uh, for a roundup episode, which was a lot of fun. So uh, first off, thank you for joining the show again, Pastor Jim. Well, thanks, Lucas. It's nice to be here. Uh, I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you once again. Yes, it's exciting. And uh, I think as we teased a little bit in the last time you were on the show, uh, today's topic, we're going to be talking about your new book, um, How in the World Did We Get Here? And uh, basically, this book tracks through uh, yeah, the changes in, in history in terms of where we find ourselves in the world today and the vast amount of conspiracy theories that are going on, uh, the, the so-called elites. People talk about the elites a lot, and people want to know, okay, what is going on there? How do we make sense of this? Um, yeah, what are people trying to do in the world? Is there a vast conspiracy? Is this all, uh, you know, is the devil at play here? What What is going on? There's so much misinformation and, and things we just don't know and forces at work that we just don't understand. So as Christians, it's important to stay informed and um, yeah, be able to use scripture to sort through the lies and the mistruths of the world and to see see where we stand and where things are going. So with that in mind, I think that's uh, that's kind of the, the tack you were taking with this book. So I want to kind of jump into it straight away because there's a ton of great material to get to. So maybe if you can give us a brief outline, a lot better than I just did there, of what is your book about? Give us the outline and we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Well, basically, my 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 purpose in writing the book was to to outline basically. I mean, the answer to the question: How in the world did we get here? How how did we arrive in uh, in a place in history when there are so many movements and so many uh, different kind of ideologies that are that are at play, powerful ideologies that are uh, really opposing the message of Christ and His kingdom? And uh, it, you know, there's there's a, a number that we'll go through that I'm sure in this episode that that I uh, talk about in in the book. And what's the history of these movements and what lies behind them? And also what kind of unites these movements? Why we can really speak about a vast conspiracy. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I always say is that I'm, a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, uh, but I'm a conspiracy realist. So that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, that's where I'm coming from. And, and what I want to do is, is equip people to understand what these movements are, where they come from, and how we can uh, play our part 
in in the battle in which we are involved. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay. Well, to start off, maybe we'll we'll look at the title. So you chose a very specific title. Can you tell us a bit um, what you mean by the word here, and also why you use the word world in that title? Okay. Yeah, because I mean, it's a you know we, we always say things like that, right? How in the world did this happen, or whatever? But I, I chose the title specifically because um, we are we know from scripture that uh, that our battle, you know, we are involved in a battle as as God's people. Uh, and and will be until Christ returns, and that our battle is not against flesh and blood, uh, but but we need the uh, uh, the armor of God to fight a spiritual battle. Uh, and so the ultimate answer to the question is why are things the way they are? Well, it's because of the existence of evil in the world. We live in a fallen world. Uh, but then we need to ask, okay, well, how do these forces of evil play themselves out in this world? And what are the the means that our enemy uses in order to try to accomplish his purposes? In his, uh, his what what will obviously be a failed attempt to to accomplish his purposes. So when I say how in the world did we get here, I'm looking at the the, the movements and the currents and the the uh, yeah the, the the earthly forces that are being used by the evil one in his battle against Christ, against his kingdom. And where is here? Here is, is the world in, of, of uh, you know, all these movements, such as the, uh, the various sexual revolutions that, uh, that we are living through at the moment. Most recently, among them, the, the whole transgender movement, uh, you know, the, the, the sexual revolution, the... the Break down to the family where these things are being uh, encouraged and and uh, and worsened. Uh, a world in which uh, you know the uh, the radical environmentalist movement has uh, uh, taken center stage in in governments and in, in positions of power, where you know transhumanism, the ideology of transhumanism, has also come to the forefront. And you know how how the the uh, the various levels of the elites in world society are working together to promote a united agenda on all of these fronts. So that's that's here. That's that's the world where that we're in. So how in the world? What are the what are the the earthly forces that are at play? Uh, did we get here to this place where uh, you know we live in a tolerant society that's intolerant of us as mm-hmm. Christians? Yes. Okay. So before we get into all these forces at play, we're going to walk through all the, the forces you talk about in your book. I think it's important to address off the top um, some pushback from people who might say, well, okay, of course, we know this is a fallen world and there's plenty of evil and uh, the devil is certainly going to be up to his, his usual tricks. Um, but do, why do we even need to know or to care about this? Like we have the final victory in Christ. Uh, do, do we have to really engage with the world? and? And really, like, what's what's the point of knowing how in the world did we get here if we have the spiritual victory already? Yeah, well, that, that's a very good question. I think I think it's a, it's an important one. It's one I considered as I was writing the book as well. And really, you know, I think there's there's two purposes, or I had had two purposes behind writing this book, and that that comes to the the kernel or the the, the core of the question. First of all. We need to we need to know and understand these things so that we can avoid getting sucked in ourselves by these movements. 
and I outline in the book as well a number of, of areas in which the church has been, uh, or you know, the evangelical church or or the church in general, uh, or parts of it have been uh, led astray by these movements. Uh, so to to avoid falling into these traps ourselves, and also to help our brothers and sisters to avoid falling into those traps, but also. Another reason why I believe strongly that we need to understand these things is because of the nature of the warfare in which we're involved. And I I continue to come back to that figure, that scriptural image of warfare. Because in order to be able to fight, to be able to fight proficiently, we need to understand the lay of the land. And an army needs to understand you know, what are the fronts that the army is fighting on? Who are they fighting against? What are the weapons that they're using? Uh, how can we equip ourselves to withstand those weapons and, and to know the terrain and, and all of those things, to use that, that battlefield imagery? Uh, I, th- I think that's extremely important for us to know that, to be able to engage. Because one of the verses that I quote in the book is uh, Romans 16, verse 20, which, which I believe is, is extremely important because it mitigates against any idea of a kind of passive fatalism on our part, knowing that Christ has won the victory. And, and praise be to God, because of that, we, we, can, we can fight this fight knowing that we're on the winning side and knowing that the victory has already been won. But that should never lead us to become passive and say, well, well Christ has won the victory. All we need to do is just we need, need to live our, our lives and, and, uh, and not worry about these things. Because Paul says in, uh, in Romans 16, verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we have this, the, the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent it goes back to Genesis 3, verse 15. And we see in Romans 16, verse 20, our, the role that we have to play in that, the role that we as church, and the role that we as individual Christians have to play in that. God does this work, but he does it using means. And by his grace and in his goodness, we have the privilege of being able to uh, work on his behalf to, uh, to, be, to be involved uh, integrally in this battle against the serpent. And, and uh, knowing that the God of peace is working uh, through us and by means of us to crush Satan under our feet. So I think those are really the, the important, the, the, the impetus behind this and why we should be informed. Because if we're not informed, we're going to be led astray and we're not going to be able to do battles we should. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think the uh, desire, or I shouldn't say desire, but the thought behind, oh, we don't need to do battle, um, is that one of like the devil's tricks uh, to kind of get us to disengage? Like I'm, I'm reading this book, you talked about a kind of a cold war and a hot war. And uh, at times, yeah, he, he will use a bit of a Cold War strategy. Do you think we're being lulled into a sense that, uh, oh, we don't really need to engage? Honestly, I, I do think that over the past decades, we have, as, as Western Christians, as North American Christians, sure. European yeah. Christians, you know, we've, we've been lulled into a kind of a false sense of security. Uh, and that is that kind of Cold War aspect. So I, I speak about, in the book, I speak about the fact that the, the, the war is always on. At times, it seems like a, a so-called hot war, you know, where the battle lines are evident, where it's, where it's very clear. 
You know, you can think of old Soviet Russia, or you can think of Muslim countries, or you can think of China, where Christians are overtly and have overtly been persecuted. And you can think of that as a, as a hot war kind of situation. But in other places, it's more of a cold war situation, where it's, where it's easy to get lulled into a, a false sense of, not, not, not security, because we should always be secure, but a false sense of uh, thinking that there is peace, where actually there is no peace. Because, because peace between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent can never exist. So the war is always ongoing. And I, th- I do think that over the past decades, uh, we have as church been uh, led to have that false sense of, you know, things are not that bad. And not understanding that, that the war is, uh, is, uh, is being waged, oftentimes in subtle ways. But, uh, you know, more recently, I would say less and less subtle ways and more and more obvious ways. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so now let's let's take some time to launch into um, the different forces at play when we're talking about these conspiracies that uh, conspiracy realists, as yourself, have, have looked into. So I think we should start uh, with, when you start within the book, talking about idols. Um, because that's, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's this idol of power. Well, there's many idols you get into, but the idol of power being one of the primary ones that, uh, that mankind is after. When, uh, when he creates these conspiracies and, and sets himself up against God, right? So can you, uh, can you explain for, for myself and for the listeners um, this idea of idols, how it's changed over history and, and the kind of idols that are at play today? I, I think the best way to, to look at it is obviously idolatry is uh, a central sin of the fallen human race. And the, the, the most basic form of idolatry is self-idolatry, where the, where the human self, the, where I, or you know, the human being, places himself on the throne, places himself at the center, makes himself God, and, and you know, wants to cast the true God off of his throne, the true king. And over time, and what we see happening over the course of history, in biblical times, the gods were gods of, of wood and stone, the gods of the forces of nature, Baal and Asheroth and the, the various other gods that were gods that were, uh, they were personifications of natural forces. Uh, Baal was a, you know, the storm god, and, and uh, they were gods of sexuality and gods of of reproduction, gods of fertility. Uh, whereas today we don't have so much. There are some places in the world where where those those kinds of gods are still extant. But but in, in the Western world particularly, we have gods that are that are not physical in nature in that way, or physical representations of these spiritual forces, but they're ideologies, they're ideas. And so they become, it's actually no different, really from Baal, no different from Ashtaroth. There's, there's still gods of fertility and gods of success and gods of, uh, of sexuality, but they've taken different forms. And so those are, those are some of the, you know, the, the, the false gods of the 20th, 21st century. Mm-hmm. But one of, the, one, of the, one of the great, I think the, the overarching uh, false god is the god of power. And, and, and the, way I, the way I describe it is that there are kind of like two levels we, that we can look at. And first of all, talking about the elites of the world. And 
in, in talking about the elites of the world, I'm I'm speaking in terms of, of Psalm 2, the, how the kings of the earth conspire together against the Lord and his anointed. And those kings of the earth are not necessarily those people who we think of as being kings of the earth. It's not necessarily the politicians. It's not necessarily the prime minister or the president, but it's the, the so-called power behind the throne who are the, the, the true elites who use political processes, who use politicians, who use leaders in other areas uh, for their own purposes. And for those elites, be they individuals or be they organizations or be they foundations or, or what have you, for those elites, the ultimate goal is power. And, and one of the things that, that, you know, an expression that's often, that's often heard is, is the expression, follow the money. If you want to know, if you want to know where uh, something's coming from or why something's happening, follow the money. See who's going to gain, gain financially from this decision. But I think when we think of the, the super elites of this world, the 1% of the 1%, uh, those people are motivated not so much by money as they are by power. And for them, power has become the God because they believe, they're, they're, they're true believers, and that's something that we need to understand, is that they're true believers in their own ideology. So they're, they're not people who are just using an ideology for a, some, some purpose or or who don't really believe in anything, but they believe in their ideology. And they believe that with their power, they will be able to implement their ideology and create utopia, create heaven on earth using that ideology. And so what ends up happening is those who worship the God of power end up manipulating those who worship other false gods whether it might be the god of socialism or the god of communism or the god of capitalism or the god of liberal democracy or the god of personal pleasure or sexuality or freedom or whatever it may be, using those uh, you know, people on the lower levels to accomplish their own goals. So throughout, you see idolatry, but idolatry that works itself out in different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm using the useful idiots who have a cause that is below or sub, yeah, subservient to the power cause, I suppose, right? So Exactly, if, exactly. To use the phrase that, that Lenin used. Yes, exactly. The, yeah, the which, phrase use, useful idiots, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if they're chasing power and they want power to create a utopia, is do you think this is still, like, what we know the heart of man is simple. Is it just a simple desire to create a utopia? Or do you think... Like, what is what is at the heart of that all at the end of the day? Like, why do humans ultimately create power? Is it because it's the hardest thing to get? Like, even harder than to, to get a lot of money? Like, there's definitely less people with a lot of money, but the people with power are even fewer. Is it just because it's the hardest thing to do? Well, I think I think there's something to that. You know, there people people will look for a challenge throughout their lives, and if they seem to have achieved it all, they would they want to achieve more. There's never enough. Yeah. For those who have money, there's never enough money. For those who have power, there's never enough power. For those who are addicted to sex, there's never enough sex. All of these things. We, we fallen, fallen man never has enough. But ultimately, I think what, what's behind it is a rejection of the truth of God's, with God's truth and the, the embracing of 
an anti-God truth. So an anti-Christ at work, basically, uh, mm-hmm. putting themselves in the, in the place of Christ. So, so in not believing that there is such a thing as eternal salvation, believing that this life is, is all that there is, so there's nothing beyond this life. So whatever we accomplish, we have to accomplish in this life. And whatever imprint we're going to leave on the world, we're going to have to do it here and now. And if you have power, you can do that. And so people, there are a lot of people who think, you know, among the, the, you know, the so-called elites of society who have very long-term goals in mind. You know, they're not, they're not just thinking about today. They're not just living for today. They're thinking about future generations. They're thinking down the road, uh, you know, in some cases, even millions of years. You know, one, one book that, I, uh, that I've read is called The Next Million Years. And it's uh, Francis Galton Darwin, uh, a, a descendant of Charles Darwin, who, who wrote that book. And, and forecasting the future for the next million years, what the human race is going to accomplish. So if God doesn't exist, if salvation in a biblical sense doesn't exist, then something or someone is going to be put in its place. And so it becomes earthly salvation under a human God earned in the way that humans come up with. Mm-hmm. And so that's ultimately kind of the utopian uh, the utopian dream or the, the, the impulse towards utopia. Yeah, they're chasing, they're really chasing immortality at the end of the day, either through exactly. their impact and their ideas, or even what we'll get into transhumanism later, but being able to live on in, their, uh, in various ways throughout time. Yeah, that's okay. exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so let's just take a pause here for a second. So I can imagine, you know, I'm, I don't know exactly what the all the political views of all our listeners are, but uh, hopefully there's, there's people on, on both sides of the spectrum somewhat. However, you do reference the spectrum in your book, and you do mention how it's the left-right political spectrum that we're all fairly accustomed to. Is is A, somewhat outdated, and B, uh, doesn't really apply when you're talking about the elites. So if I were to just put myself in the shoes of someone who's more of a left-leaning person but still a faithful Christian, and they're going, okay, so Lucas and Jim here are kind of going off the deep end. They're, uh, they're really getting into this whole conspiracy thing. I don't know, this seems like kind of a right-wing uh, rabbit trail. Like, you know, there's there's plenty of these people who kind of go off the deep end with all these conspiracies. Now, let's let's kind of let's kind of back up and get to a bit of proof here. You talk about the open conspiracy uh, with Wells and whatnot. Um, can you kind of talk about how this is not really a uh, secret whatsoever and actually doing it out in the open is part of the strategy? Right, exactly. That's that's really one of the things where where you know, the whole term conspiracy theorist becomes this pejorative term that's used against people. Uh, you believe that there's a group of, of people, perhaps of a certain race or a certain ethnic group or a, from a certain place, a secret society that's working in a back room somewhere, a smoky, smoke-filled room in some, you know, evil headquarters somewhere in a cave, so whatever. Uh, and, and they're secretly controlling everything in the world. Well, that's absolutely not the case. And what is the case is, and, and, and you, you mentioned H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells was one of the elites, you know, the intellectual elites of the early 20th century, uh, most well known for his uh, works of science fiction now, probably. But at the time, he was, uh, he was very, very influential 
uh, in the political, the, soci the sociological sphere. And he spoke of, and he wrote a book with the title, The Open Conspiracy. And what he said was, is that we, and he included himself in this as a member of the elite, we need to work in such a way so that we can get everybody on board to, to join forces in our conspiracy. So he used these words, and he used them openly to speak about an open conspiracy, because he said a secret conspiracy is not going to work. It needs to be an open conspiracy because it needs to welcome people from every corner, and, and we need to get these people on our side. So whether it's the socialists or whether it's the Marxists or whether at that time it was the eugenicists or whether it was the people who believed in science or the Christians or whoever it may be, we need to get them on our side uh, in service to this elite idea of what should happen to the world. And so what ends up happening is that the leadership in these various movements becomes more or less a pawn in a greater game. And so they're played off against each other. And uh, I'm speaking to you from Brazil. And uh, here in Brazil, they, they speak about the, uh, the scissors of, uh, of, of the, the, the two sides of the political spectrum. And so it's like, uh, it, you know, it's like the two, uh, the two sides of the scissors. Uh, so the left and the right uh, are really not, when you, when you get to the, the actual top, they're not all that different uh, from one another. They, have, they might have different perspectives on some things. They might not agree on everything. But when you get to the top of the pyramid, there's far less disagreement than there is amongst the, you know, the rabble, you know, you and mm -hmm. I, people, people at the bottom. So you have people on the left and you have people on the right and they're fighting with each other at the, at the grassroots level. Whereas the people who are at the top are dining together, they're friends, they get along, they go to their, their banquets and they go to their sporting events and they sit in the same luxury boxes. And, uh, you know, when uh, one, one real good example of this is when a couple of years ago, when there was this big controversy, when Ellen DeGeneres was sitting in a football luxury box with George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then they were uh, they were enjoying the football game together, and uh, uh, people people on the left were screaming about Ellen DeGeneres, you know, getting together with somebody from far right figure like George W. Bush. People on the right were screaming about George W. Bush getting together with this left wing figure, you know. But but they got along quite well. And and uh, another example is prior to becoming president, Donald Trump had a lot of good things to say about the Clintons, and they were friends. Uh, so the, where is the difference in that? And so I, I, I look at, the way I look at it is, oftentimes this left-right dichotomy is something that is actually being used to divide us. And the differences are not uh, as clear-cut as we would like to, to imagine that they are. And I think for us as Christians, this is particularly helpful. To understand this, because we may be tempted, and, and I think we often are tempted, to put our trust in one side of the political spectrum, mm -hmm. and say, and say, if only we could get a conservative in power, particularly, you know, conservative Christians. Also, if only we could get a conservative in power, or in the states, if only we can get a Republican in power, then things will be different. 
But if you really look at the history, and if you really look at even even presidents in the United States who are considered to be far right wing conservative presidents, like Richard Nixon, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you, you yeah. look at their actual policies, or even Ronald Reagan, and you look at their policies, and a lot of things that happened during their terms in office uh, had very little to do with conservative uh, or even especially Christian principles. Yep. And a lot of the, you know, the kind of movements, you know, that goes back from conservative Canada, conservative to liberal, liberal to conservative, but the main movements remain the same behind the scenes. Yeah. You could see it, like you said earlier about following the money. If you look at the biggest money maker, it's, it's going to be war and the military industrial complex in the States. It doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat, that thing just keeps chugging. Well, exactly. That's exactly. And that that's one of the, you know, that's one of the central uh, players. When we think of the power players in the world, when we think of the elites, the the military industrial complex is right in there and and heavily, heavily involved also in Silicon Valley and big tech, uh, which are, you know, some the, the the other one of the other power players in the world today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. OK, so this is not good. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. And, and and that doesn't that doesn't know that you know that that kind of thinking doesn't know left or right. You know, Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize, which was really one of the most ridiculous things to ever happen. As Barack Obama, he preached peace, he said all the right things, he said very nice words, uh, but you know, under which president did the most drone strikes happen in the Middle East? Under Barack Obama, who even joked about the use of drones. Uh, in public speeches and things like that. So to say, well, you know, that side is going to save us. That that side's going to to seek peace. Well, as it turns out, they certainly didn't. So there was a continuity between the first George Bush, Bill Clinton, the second George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. You know, to look at the United States as an example, there's that continuity all along the line. Although that, you know, the average person said, oh, well, now we have our guy in office. Things are going to change. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. change. No, no, it just keeps going on. Okay, right. so so now we have a good segue into propaganda because as we've seen at the end of the day, at the top of the scissors, if you will, it's all actually very similar and the elites are not actually so much left or right as just power and money. Mm-hmm. Um, so they will use propaganda to get uh, the left and the right mobilized against each other and, and to mobilize lesser forces for, for their own um, deeds and whatnot and for their own purposes. Um, so how does that propaganda um, start and get spread today? You used a, a metaphor I found helpful about cattle uh, when you were talking about propaganda in the book. Yeah, the, yeah, the metaphor about cattle is, uh, I think it's an apt one because... Uh, it's particularly apt in the uh, the social media age and mm-hmm. the age of the age of algorithms where everything everything that we see everything that's fed to us is by means of algorithms so wh- whether we're on facebook or using twitter or using instagram uh, whatever whatever the social network or even even the news sites that we look at those algorithms are hurting us in a direction and and so we're we're actually hurt, being herded into echo chambers. We're herded into uh, into places where uh, we're going to hear things that we want to hear, 
And we're also being herded into places where those who control the means of divulgation of divulgation of of, of the news or uh, opinion pieces where they want us to go, where the other voices voices that are that don't agree that go against the the great narrative are are basically put pushed to the side, silenced. Uh, even even uh, you know, and most recently we've seen it over the past couple of years, voices being excluded from the uh, conversation because they're called uh, you know harmful disinformation or misinformation, or the accusation is made that well it's Russian bots that they're they're the ones who are spreading this misinformation or disinformation or whatever other, and this is where you know other conspiracy theories. Well, it's Russian bots. Well, not really. No, it's not. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it's uh, actual people who are saying these things and who have their opinions. So we're being herded like cattle down different chutes to places where the rancher wants us to go. And, and you know what the end of end of cattle is when they when they get to the end of that last chute, uh, they go to their own slaughter. Uh, so we need to be very much aware of that. We need to be aware of. When it comes to propaganda, we need to be aware of the means that are being used to manipulate us. And that's where I think we need to seriously work to propaganda-proof ourselves and our children and our young people, because we're being bombarded with it. Totally, totally. You mentioned uh, in the book, too, about how modern society is set up now, how we're so... um uh, we're just at, uh, automatized and, and individualistic and we don't have these uh, mediating structures between us and the government. Can you go into that a little bit and how that plays into propaganda being able to be spread that much more easily? Yeah. The, the, the person who is the most susceptible to propaganda is the person who doesn't have a, what you could call a support network or a, you mentioned the word mediating institution. Uh, between the individual and the the organ or or the uh, the group or the the organization that is behind the propaganda, and so the individual stands alone. And our society is extremely individualized, and I don't believe that, that that's by accident. the The family itself, in so many ways, has come under attack. Uh, the church, as well, other. Even other organizations, non-religious organizations, uh, clubs, and uh, you know, local philanthropic organizations, uh, women's clubs, men's clubs, uh, societies of uh, in neighborhoods and things like that have fallen by the wayside. So that, in large part, it's the individual and the state that that exists, and so there's nothing between to help with that. So I use a couple of examples in the book of, of like a modern family where uh, everyone is, is going their own separate way all day. The kids are in programs. They're in school all day. They're, they're in programs after school. Uh, the family doesn't even eat together. They're, they basically live under the same roof. Everybody's on their devices all the time. Uh, they're, they're being bombarded from without, but they don't have anything strengthening them around them. It's like a, a single tree is going to have a very hard time when the storm comes, but, but you, you have a, a forest full of trees, they support each other. And that's exactly the image that, that uh, uh, 
we need to have in mind when we think about propaganda. And the, the first step in propaganda proofing ourselves, our families, our churches, is emphasizing the importance of the covenant community and the basis of that, the, 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 the basic part of that, which is the family structure ordained by God for our good. And so parents training their children, uh, supporting each other, brothers and sisters supporting each other. Uh, and I'm talking about, you know, physical brothers and sisters, as well as spiritual brothers and sisters supporting each other. And uh, being aware of the fact that the people who are bringing all of these things to us, bringing the news to us, bringing our entertainment, bringing the movies, bringing the te television shows, bringing the music, they all have an agenda. And that agenda, by and large, is not a good one. And it's not one that, that, uh, that we can support. It's not one that, it's one that, that absolutely goes against everything that we believe in. And so we need, first of all, the, the key is awareness. And then after that, awareness of the various different techniques that are used to try to manipulate us and get us to accept things that are absolutely opposed to the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that support for each other, which I do agree is very important in the church community, um, and as we're on the lookout for propaganda, I think one of the other things we do have to keep in mind is that even the church itself as an institution can be and has been uh, weaponized in, in history by propagandists, um, more so probably on the, on the liberal side of the spectrum, uh, at, least, at least in recent history. Although uh, it's a danger, no matter no matter what uh, the church is, uh, can you talk a bit about how that was done, uh, particularly with Operation Warp Speed? Yeah, I think I'll talk about Operation Warp Speed, but we can go back even further. And I, I, sure. I think that the because I think we'll be talking about eugenics a little further on. But okay. in in the in the time uh, in the early in the first opening decades of the twentieth century, the eugenics movement was extremely powerful. And it was growing among the intellectual elites, which is the idea that we need to we can we can save society by careful breeding of human beings. It's like uh, it's like a breeding program that uh, farmers use for cattle, but it's applied to human beings. And so we can breed out of the human race all of these weaknesses that uh, serve to bring society down. So that was the eugenics movement, and we'll, we'll talk about that further. But what ended up happening, and and what what the the movers and shakers in the eugenics movement, the the the, the intellectual leaders of the movement understood, was that they needed to get a couple of groups on side on their, uh, you know, on their uh, to to work towards their agenda. And first of all, was was the scientists, and then the churches, because the churches at that time, the more much more so than today were a very real and very powerful force in society, especially in the United States. And so they needed to get the churches on side. And so they worked to do that. And they, they turned the uh, what, what have now become the mainline churches, uh, when we think of the mainline churches in Canada, you can think of the United, the United Church, uh, the Anglican Church, the, the Presbyterian Church of Canada, those, those kinds of churches at that time. They turned those churches in the United States especially and in Canada, uh, into allies in, in the, the battle for uh, racial purity, you know, purity of the human race. 
uh, and they they did things like uh, they had sermon contests uh, encouraging ministers pastors to preach about eugenics and how the the poor and the unfit and the the feeble minded needed to stop breeding and that that how that needed to be imposed on society and so the church in this case the progressive wing of the church those who believed in the social gospel those who were thought of as being liberal progressives uh they ended up on the side of the uh the people who would lead to the ideology of adolf hitler and his eugenics and his idea of the the, the pure uh, master Aryan race, and so in that way, the churches were were brought on board, and uh, a very sad moment in the history of of the uh, evangelical church in the early twentieth century. But when we look to more recent history, and the example of Operation Warp Speed, which was the the uh, the, the the military, the U.S. military industrial complex uh, using uh, being used. Uh, together with the the uh, medical establishments or the pharmaceutical establishment in the United States to promote to, to uh, promote vaccination against COVID nineteen, the the churches again this is this is not was not something secret this is not something hidden this is something that's in the documents of Operation Warp Speed itself. The goal was to very specifically to create programs to get the churches on side to promote. All of these these uh, projects and programs to support Operation Warp Speed. So there were specific government ministries or, or you know government uh, bureaucracies that were set up to get religious leaders, church leaders, synagogue leaders, uh, even you know Muslim Muslim leaders, whatever whatever religion, but uh, especially in inner cities, in black neighborhoods, to get the church leaders on side to promote the uh, vaccination, promote, you know, every, every aspect of uh, Operation Warp Speed at that time. Knowing that, the, the, the church has and continues to have a very strong influence, particularly in some parts of society. And if you can get the church on board, you can get the people on board. And if, if you can get, uh, if you can do that, you can manipulate the masses using the church as a tool using that propaganda. And they were somewhat successful with that too. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And which is a very scary thing when you think about it, when you think about how uh, evangelical leaders uh, could be used in such a way. And in some cases, uh, via money via funds via uh you know being being uh or just just not even just financial benefit but also a uh, a perceived societal benefit to to get on board mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the but the church has been has been the, the target of propaganda in very many other ways as well and, and that that includes also uh, not just the evangelical churches but also the the roman catholic church uh, has been the target in the United States of propaganda, uh, especially in the first half of the 20th century, and continuing on until today. Yep, yep, definitely. So, how you mentioned this earlier about becoming propaganda proof by supporting, uh, well, by first of all paying attention, but then also and being aware. 
but then also supporting uh, our brothers and sisters, obviously both physically and in a spiritual sense in the church, in um, yeah, in, in staying aware and, and uh, focusing back on scripture, I guess, too, would be kind of the ultimate answer really there. Is that is that kind of where we're headed on this? Just to stay aware? Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think we need to understand. And, and, and uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, my podcast is called Dan 1132. And so it's one of, it's, you know, <laughs> one of my favorite central verses. The people who know their God will stand firm and take action. So, so the first thing we need to do is know our God. And to know our God, we need to know his word. And we need to know and understand and confess and live according to the confession that his word is truth. And it's truth with a capital T. And that Jesus Christ is the truth. We also need to understand that the enemy is the father of lies. And so we need to become uh, critical thinkers. And we need to teach critical thinking. And we need to live critical thinking. We need to not be gullible. We need, we need to not be uh, ingenuous. So people who are easily fooled or people who automatically think the best of everyone. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be like that because we, of all people, as Reformed Christians especially, we, we should understand total depravity. And mm. we should understand that, they, that uh, yes, that, that unbelievers, uh, by God's grace, have been able to accomplish many things in this world. But ultimately, those who are not in service to Christ are in service to Satan. And so I think that's one of the most, most important things that we need to understand and emphasize. And that, that will help us to become more skeptical, more critical, more better critical thinkers and evaluate what we hear and what we see with a certain automatic sense of suspicion. Yep. And I think that's, that, that's, that needs to be our starting point. Yes. Yep, for sure. A large part of uh, the propaganda effort is uh, done through education, in particular, particular the uh, public school system. Um, can we? Can you talk a little bit about the Club of Rome? Uh, you mentioned this in your book. This was this was new to me. How education is used as a tool for for propaganda by elites? Yeah, absolutely. When we look at our education system, the education system that we've grown up with, that our you know our parents have grown up with, our grandparents have grown up with. A large part of our education system is built on the Prussian education system. So Prussia, uh, you know, prior to the, the uniting of Germany, Prussia being the dominant force in, in, among the Germanic people. The Prussians, they, they, they were very, very good, very skilled and uh, insightful in their development of an education system, which was to create good Prussian citizens, to create good Prussian bureaucrats, to create good Prussian workers, good Prussian administrators uh, to get society organized and to fall in line. And when you look at the fathers of the American educational system who built on the, the foundation of the Prussian educational system themselves, their goal also was to create a homogeneous society where everybody could fill their role. And so they believe that there were certain people who were made to be manual workers. There were other people who were meant to uh, take on uh, leadership and managerial roles, but everybody had to be slotted into their role. And so the goal was to create a, uh, a good system, a good system to create good citizens 
who would fit in as peaceful citizens and contributing citizens in the country. Along with that, what, what, what developed in the 20th century was the entrance of the foundations, uh, the so-called philanthropical foundations, uh, like, for example, the, the, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and other, Carnegie Foundation, uh, and others that were founded by the, uh, the mega-rich of the day uh, for their own purposes. And at one point, the, uh, the educational establishment received more funding from these foundations than they did from the actual state. And so uh, whoever pays the piper calls the tune. And so who was, who was calling the tune in the educational world? Well, it was the Rockefellers, it was the Fords, it was the Carnegies. And they did it for their own purposes because they wanted to ensure that their ever-growing empires had enough worker bees to keep them going. Uh, so ultimately, the goal is not the formation of uh, good Christians, as in a Christian school, uh, but it's the formation of good uh, worker bees to be uh, to work together in the hive uh, and to uh, to be to become uh, interchangeable cogs in the machine. You could say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we accept this model of like the the Prussian system that it's based upon, and this the use of day schools for churning out yeah these the good worker bees, the people that fit into the slots that uh, we we would like to see, so to speak, as a society, at least from the elite perspective. If we accept this model, uh, even though we have a very specific reformed education system, are we inherently accepting some sort of worldly propaganda or programming in that? Well, I think I think to a certain extent, this is something that really needs to be evaluated. No, not to a certain extent. This is something that really needs to be evaluated. And I think I think we need to we need to be ready to discuss and evaluate our presuppositions when it comes to education. And we need to ask the question, have we swallowed the presuppositions of the Prussian-American uh, educational system and the foundational beliefs that this educational system has? Uh, have, we, have we taken that for granted without actually understanding what the purpose behind it was? So we need to ask that question, and we need to have that discussion. I'm not saying I have the answers to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but what what I am what I am saying is that we I do believe we need to seriously examine the way that we do school and the purposes for which we do it. Yeah, because I think we I think we work with it we work with presuppositions and we work with ideas that are largely given to us by the world, and we we. We want to fit in in the world system, and, and, and we want our children to be successful. We want them to earn a good living. Uh, we want them to be successful in society. And all, none of those things are bad things. Uh, but we need to consider what our educational system is for, how it should be structured. Should it necessarily be structured in the same way that the public school system structures their system? And what I think we certainly need to examine, uh, even more so, is our relationship as independent Christian schools with the public school system and the, the government system, especially in places where government funding is received. Because once again, with that funding, uh, government funding never comes without strings attached. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So those are those are some serious questions that we need to ask. And I think that discussion needs to happen. Yeah. Is there, and this is just off the cuff, so if you don't look at the answer, no problem. But is there any sort of uh, specific model that we can look to in scripture throughout either Old Testament or New Testament in terms of how uh, the early church or even the Old Testament, how how education was done? Well, I think I think when we when we look at the at the foundation of uh, because obviously the world of the Old Testament is very different from from the modern industrial post industrial world in which we live. Yeah, right? we don't live we don't live in a, in an agrarian society. But I think for us, the foundation needs to be Deuteronomy six. You know, Deuteronomy six. You know, uh, when you uh, you know train up your children, uh, and uh, and Deuteronomy six is. Uh, uh, you know, when your children ask of you these things, you need to speak of these things uh, as you lie down, as you get up. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but, uh, you know, as you walk by the way and all of these things, the, the, the central aspect of education belongs to the parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's it's the parents who are forming the next generation of God's people. And that cannot be left to the the experts. You know, maybe maybe you don't know science and you need somebody to teach them science. Uh, that's that's fine, but the ultimate formation of the spiritual formation of children is that, and I think that's a that's a, a reformed presupposition, uh, yeah, yeah. which we also you know in our form for baptism in, in the Canadian Reformed Church we talk about that that the, the one of the vows that parents make when they present their children to be baptized is uh, you know do you promise to instruct your children in these things or have them instructed therein, but ultimately that the, the the primary focus is on the responsibility of parents. And I think that's that's extremely important. How that, you know, in terms of education in general, how that works itself out, I think is a matter for uh, discussion and it's a matter for us to, to think very seriously about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I myself actually just took that vow like a week ago. So it's, it's definitely been on my mind reading this book. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, congratula- congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Great it's blessing. pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know if I actually made a good time to update the podcast that uh, my wife and I received a healthy baby girl. Uh, at the time, you're probably listening to this. It'll be about five weeks ago. Uh, but yeah, she, uh, little Annalise Joy, all as well. So very thankful. Marvelous. Um, yes. Okay. Um, actually, okay. Just a quick follow-up on that, actually. Um, what, where does that leave homeschooling then? Because I think that's becoming a more common answer for a lot of parents. And it's, I mean, to be honest, it's 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 in my head too, as to like, okay, so five years from now, like, what does that mean? Um, not just because of also the economics of running a school or becoming increasingly challenge, uh, challenging, but it's also, yeah, because of the education system around us. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on homeschooling and then if it's a good fit for Christian parents? Yes. I think, I think there are really two, for me, in, uh, in my opinion, there are two live options to the, the Christian day school as we have it now. And that, that is homeschooling on the one hand, which I believe is a, a, a very good option. It's something that we've done uh, throughout uh, our children's uh, education experience and also a, a, a cooperative model uh, or a hybrid model of homeschooling uh, in cooperation with other parents, which is not a, perhaps not a structured day school, but uh, a more of a cooperative, small-scale uh, educational enterprise in, with that close cooperation between parents. And I think, I think as 
as the challenges increase, and I think they are only going to increase if, if recent history is any, any uh, uh, example of that, as the challenges increase, I think more and more Christian families are going to have to look to, to those options for their children and for the, mm-hmm. for the sake of their children and for the sake of the, the, the spiritual health and the, and the uh, you know, just the general education of their children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on from education then. Uh, we'll get into, you had a chapter all about the different sexual uh, revolutions, plural, and you can, you can get into that in a moment. Uh, but I guess just to set it up, uh, the importance of, of the importance of these sexual revolutions um, is because they go after the family unit and the family unit is one of these key mediating structures between the individual and the state. And if it's not there, if it's very weak, we are at that much more at risk for to be propagandized and, and to be led astray. So just to set the, the background for getting into this, can you talk a little bit about the different sexual revolutions and some of the key players involved there? Yeah. When we when we I think when we think about the sexual revolution, we often think about the 1960s. You know, what mm. happened in the in the 1960s, especially when it comes to uh, women's liberation, so-called women's liberation movement, the sexual revolution make love, not war, all of those things that happened in the 1960s, the whole hippie movement, the free love movement, uh, the birth control pill was, was introduced. And with that, uh, a far, in a far more liberated sense of sexuality and, you know, what, what the bounds should be or shouldn't be of the expression of human sexuality. But I use the term sexual revolutions because the story actually goes back much further. Obviously, it goes back to the, the the fall into sin uh, and and immediately thereafter. But when we think about modern history, you can look back to the early 20th century to uh, figures uh, such as Wilhelm Reich, uh, who was uh, very very much a proponent of liberal uh, liberalized sexu- uh, sexuality expressions of sexuality in the early 20th century. Uh, someone like uh, Alfred Kinsey, whose Kinsey report, his report on male sexuality became uh, very well known in the 19, middle of the middle of the 20th century, uh, and was was very much promoted as a groundbreaking work on sexuality. And then also people like uh, Herbert Marcuse, the the Frankfurt School, the School of, of Critical Theory, who also promoted. Uh, sexual liberation as a means of making society better. That that if only that the, all of this repressed sexuality could be expressed, there wouldn't be as much violence. There wouldn't be as much war uh, because so much of these there wouldn't be so much competition because because which is which is negative because so many of these things people like Mark, Herbert Marcuse said are caused by the repression of sexual desire, which is which is very very negative and very damaging. Something also that Wilhelm Reich said that you know when young people repress their sexual desire, they become uh, neurotic, and that 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 affects them throughout their lives. And if they could be free, then uh, they would truly be uh, free to become their best selves. And of course, that that tra- that that translated on to the 1960s as as kind of the the culmination of those movements of the previous four decades, really. Yeah. And so it doesn't come. 
And that's one of the things that I really want to emphasize is that these things don't come out of nowhere. Oftentimes we're caught, we're caught by surprise by these things, by these movements. And I mean, I wasn't alive in the 1960s, but I can imagine that Christians at that time were, were you know, your average Christian was probably wondering, you know, how on earth did this happen? You know, where did these, these free love people come from? Yep. <laughs> you know, the, these flower children, where did they come from? What, what, what on earth happened? Uh, not understanding that this was the fruit of four, you know, four decades of work in the past. Yeah. And and now coming now coming to fruition, and so okay. just to bring it to the just to bring it to the modern day, perhaps over the past past five years or so, people have been asking themselves, where on earth did this sudden acceptance of transsexualism come from? Because again, it's something that seems to have just just all of a sudden. I mean, I remember uh, probably in the late when I was a kid, so the late nineteen seventies. I remember reading somewhere because I was a, you know, I read a lot of weird things. I remember as a kid, I remember reading somewhere about about uh, the uh, the early sex change operations that were happening happening in Sweden. I remember thinking this is the weirdest thing ever, you know, as a as a ten year old <laughs> somehow reading this in a magazine or something. But uh, and so that that but it was considered to be something very strange, mm-hmm. and and now now all of a sudden it's uh, it's 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 in the news every day. And it's something that's being pushed and forced, and it's coming more and more and more and more. It's being, you know, so you might think, well, where did this come from all of a sudden? Well, again, as there's a, there's a lot of steps that have gone into bringing us to where we are today, in terms yeah. of these sexual revolutions. Yeah. And so that's cool. the same. It's the same thing. I, I just briefly mentioned Alfred Kinsey. You know, mm-hmm. Alfred Kinsey, his whole his whole goal was not. It was not that the you know, the dispassionate scientific study of sexuality. He was a man who had an agenda and he was working with people who had agendas. He was supported by people who had agendas to push a viewpoint about sexuality that society wasn't as sexually prudish as people had been led to believe. And it wasn't as sexually conservative as people were led to believe. And so, you know, going from you know, the, the Kinsey study, which was completely, in, in so many ways, unscientific. Uh, used skewed uh, populations to do its surveys uh, and skewed the results, uh, used quest- leading questions to bring people to certain answers, etc. Led to the idea that, for example, you know, 10% of the population is homosexual, which has never been the case. Uh, and perhaps, perhaps, uh, as the uh, societal pressure, as the social contagion continues to grow, it it, uh, it may be closer to the case today than it ever was. But throughout, you know, at least modern history, it has not been the case that ten percent of society is homosexual. Mm-hmm. It's more like two or more like two or three percent probably. Uh, but that number kind of became fixed in people's thinking because of Alfred Kinsey's work in sexology yeah uh, and so so his uh his his work became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy totally it i mean today i've seen studies where and it, the, the problem with this is they're, they're defining it uh, as lgbtq etc cetera, etc cetera. they yeah. add more and more identities so the you would think the percentage of people will grow but in my generation in gen z or gen z or we say that 
it's up to 20% in some studies they'll say yep. are under that, under that LGBTQ rubric. So it's exactly. it definitely is a self-fulfilling prophecy that way. One thing that stuck out to me in this chapter uh, was this idea of generation gap. Uh, and I believe that was uh, William Reich who, who got into that a little bit um, with the German people saying like, uh, you need to liberate yourselves, young, young people, and young people don't understand and whatnot. Um, in, in my head, at least reading this, I always thought, oh, it's just a feature of every generation. The younger generation thinks the older generation doesn't know what they're doing. And the older generation's like, oh, these young kids, like what they're doing, this is crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. But if, if I read that correctly, this seems to be one of these manufactured ideas that's kind of only come around in the last hundred years or so. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think to a certain extent, it, it, it always it always exists to to a certain level. Okay. Right? Yeah. The, between 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 the the youth and and the older generation, the young people will go through a period where they question things and they 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 are more you know rebellious. They have to learn. They have to learn to follow their parents. But there's not this this dichotomy that's created between the older generation and then the younger generation. So a guy like Wilhelm Reich, he looked at the Christian Church as being this bastion of of elderly prudish people who didn't want the young people to have any fun. Mm. Now, Wilhelm Reich had uh, certain proclivities of his own, which led him to these kind of conclusions. I don't need to say anything more about that, but that's fairly typical among these sexologists. They, all, they have their own uh, problems, uh, their own perversions that they're wanting to promote. And that goes for uh, Wilhelm Reich, that goes for uh, Alfred Kinsey, that goes for another one who I don't mention in the book, uh, but if I do a volume two, I will mention John Money, uh, mm. who is also a very important figure in this history. Uh, uh, the same thing. They, they, they want to, oftentimes the intellectual elites want to promote their own uh, proclivities or their own perversions, and they want to justify themselves, and that, that's often what happens. But Specifically, when we talk about the generation gap, again, that you're you're exactly right that there is a, a that that real stark dichotomy between the older generation and the younger generation, uh, which came to its you know blooming point in the in the late 1950s and 1960s. Yes, there are some societal uh, movements, the post-war generation. Uh, a lot of absent fathers involved in, in overseas warfare for a long time, etc. A lot of things happened and a lot of developments. But at the same time, that generation gap was being pushed and it was being emphasized and it was being strengthened by those in the halls of academia who wanted to create this dichotomy and say, we need to let the young people, you know, the... Uh, you know, there, there, there's that uh, the song by Crosby, Stills, and Nash about uh, uh, that says, "Teach your parents well." You know, the, the, where the where the children need to to, to teach, teach their parents. So youth uh, is uh, endued with this uh, or uh, with this wisdom that the el- the old no longer have. So yeah, it's that that is not again, it's not something that comes from nowhere. No. No, all these, they all come from different, different ideas and and academics often. And yeah, it just takes a few decades, but they do get worked out for sure. That's right. It's, it's the, you know, they talk about trickle down economics. This is kind of the, the, the trickle down, the the trickle down theory of, of ideological and intellectual movements, Mm -hmm. which has proven, which has proven itself again and again. 
Yes, this is very true. Um, if, if listeners are interested, we have a previous episode with Jonathan uh, Marin, and we get into Kinsey and, and John Money, I believe, if I remember correctly as well. So if you want some more context, uh, go go scroll down the feed and, and check that out later. Um, but for now, yeah, we'll absolutely. move on. Definitely, definitely. So for and now, John, though, And John Money. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, John Money is a very important figure. He's a very important figure when we talk about gender ideology and the gender ideology of today. Uh, a lot of that flows back to uh, John Money and followers of John Money. And John Money himself was a uh, you know a follower of Kinsey. So yeah, totally, totally. Okay, we'll uh, shift gears here a bit and get into uh, another one of these topics, which is uh, population control, eugenics, and a big part of eugenics uh, today uh, still is uh, the abortion industry. And uh, I was wondering if you could touch on quickly. Uh, we all know how big of a problem abortion is. Uh, but I didn't know that uh, Warren Buffett is one of the biggest promoters and supporters of this. I always thought of him yeah. as like, oh, this guy is like, I respect him as an investor, yeah. smart guy, whatever. But he keeps a low profile, but he he's very involved in this, apparently. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that, that kind of gets back to the left-right dichotomy. Because Warren Buffett, uh, one, of the, one of the biggest financial supporters of abortion worldwide, and you know, people look at him as being kind of this kindly old man, supporter of the Republican Party, uh, all of these kinds of things. But he, together with his partner, whose name escapes me right now, and I don't have the book in front of me. Charlie Munger. Uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they, they both uh, worked, very much worked together to promote abortion and abortion as a, a, a eugenic tool, as a means of population control. Uh, and and oftentimes framing their support of abortion, as so many do, as a, a woman's rights issue, as a compassion issue, uh, using using the the right terms and using the right catchphrases and the pulling at the right strings to encourage people to accept abortion as or you know think of abortion as being something acceptable uh, when they have their again they have their agenda, which. For many of the of the elites of society, the 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 Warren Buffetts, the uh, the Ted Turners, the Bill Gates of the world, is population control, diminishing the Earth's population because overpopulation is seen as being the the you know the the most clear and present danger for all of society. But again, it shows you that the you know the whole left right dichotomy uh, doesn't really make much difference in this area because when you look at Various movements in terms of the liberalization of abortion uh, and and other move, similar movements happened in the United States under Republican governors, Republican presidents, uh, Republican elites were involved heavily involved in Planned Parenthood. Uh, the Bushes, for example, uh, George Bush's father was involved in, in Planned Parenthood. Uh, he wrote he wrote about it in an introduction to uh, a report on world population uh, in the 1970s. Uh, something something that people don't consider. Now they 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 would come out and they would speak against it. But then you know, so you have on the one hand you have George Bush's father who's involved in Planned Parenthood. On the other hand, you have Bill Gates's uh, parents who are heavily involved in Planned Parenthood as well. So mm. on both sides of both sides of the spectrum, you could say. Uh, the uh, the whole issue of abortion, the issue of eugenics, population control, uh, 
being pushed among the the power elites of society. Totally. Um, do you want to touch a bit on on family size? Uh, obviously, this is well known to everybody, but people have less and less kids today in the Western world, and actually increasingly across the entire world. Um, and I think. It actually seems, interestingly enough, that some people just out there in the world are waking up to this being a problem. Uh, notably, one of the guys you mentioned in the book earlier, uh, Elon Musk, is actually raising yep. this a lot. Um, so I guess, first of all, on the one hand, um, do you see the impact of the world having less and less children uh, creeping into the church? And then secondly, um, what do you make of this kind of new awakening in, in some of the people outside of the church, such as Elon Musk? noticing yeah. that this is a big problem yeah absolutely i think uh you know it rains in the world and it drips in the church and that's uh and we see that with family size as family size and and uh uh you know we can thank the lord that it hasn't been to the extent that it has been in the world but it it has had its impact where uh and and again there are reasons behind that and, and reasons why people believe that they can no longer have families of 10, 12 children like, you know, perhaps our grandparents' generation had. And now maybe it's, uh, you know, maximum of, you know, maybe five or something like, you know, four or five. And then people you know, think that, well, that's, now it's too much. We can't afford it. We, you know, we can't, uh, we can't handle it mentally. We can't handle it financially. Uh, and so we stop. We stop. We, we, we have more children than the world does. But we don't, uh, we're not as fruitful as we could be. And as, as we, uh, I, as I believe we should desire to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the uh, because what happens, and this is where propaganda and education and all of these things come into play. Because, it, you know, to a large extent, we are very heavily influenced by our culture and our society and by the messages that we're, you know, being bombarded with on all sides. And so it's no, it's no surprise where, you know, we're told that children are expensive and that they take a lot of our time and they take a lot of our freedom. And, and each child needs to have a certain amount of individual attention. And if we can't give them that individual attention, then we're actually abusing them. So mm-hmm. if you have, say, say nine children, you know, some people will look at that and they'll say, well, that's child abuse because you can't give your child attention the way that they should have it. Not understanding that when you have a family of nine children, uh, the children, uh, in in many ways, raise each other. You know, as as the, the older ones help out with the raising of the younger ones, and so there's so many things that go together. Uh, a large family isn't nearly as onerous as people have been led to believe, and uh, and we need to also change our expectations when it comes to what we do with our children and what we what we what we think that we need to provide for our children. You know, if you have you have 12 children uh you don't have to put all 12 children in hockey and play and pay however many thousands of dollars that costs for equipment and rental and everything else yeah so expectations need to be changed and and god's god's uh the the privilege that we've received from god to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth uh that that command has not been fulfilled yeah again i'm here in brazil brazil is 220 million people it is one of the largest largest cities in the world, which is uh, Sao Paulo. But uh, you know, yesterday we we drove here to a city in the interior, and uh, there's still a lot of empty space here. So uh, yeah, we're not full yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not like there's no vacancy. 
and uh, and and it's been proven again and again, you know, throughout history, that uh, you know the population control advocates have been wrong, and have been mm-hmm. wrong, badly wrong, when they said the Earth cannot support any more population. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely incorrect. Yeah, we need so, growth. We need more people. Yeah, absolutely, because with more people comes also more ingenuity, more ideas, uh, more. Uh, more intellect put toward solving the problems of uh, of humanity in terms of okay, well, how can we support this many people? Well, if you have uh, more people to to work on these things and to develop and to work in the sciences and to work in in all of these areas, uh, there are ways and means, and yeah. that, and that's been that's been proven. So, but this has been this this whole idea of of, of population control has been an elite. Uh, part of the elite agenda for centuries, going back to Thomas Malthus uh, in the 18th century, uh, and then on on through people like H.G. Wells uh, into the 20th century, uh, people like Julian Huxley, the father of transhumanism, uh, and on through the, to the beginning of the environmental movement. Uh, and throughout, it has been the elites of society who have said we need less, uh, you know, to use an expression, uh, we need less useless eaters uh, in this world uh, because we, uh, you know, it's uh, otherwise it's the population bomb that's going to exclude. Mm-hmm. So as Christians, I think as Christians, I think we really need to take seriously the creation mandate that God's given to us. That creation mandate has not ended. No, to be no. fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because, you know, the more children we have, the more voices we have to lift themselves up to praise God. Very true. Very true. But, and um, I'll make the counter case for a second, uh, or not full counter case, but just a slight pushback on that is that uh, I would say economically, compared to at least uh, our parents' generation, speaking for, for people my age, it does seem to be economically much more challenging to raise a large family uh in this day and age where housing is just very unaffordable and uh well currently inflation is is uh, not all-time high but still quite high at this point interest rates are off and all that jazz i'm not saying it's a great excuse and it wouldn't stop me personally but i do have some sympathy for people who are are in a tough position and if yeah whatever if you're on a fixed salary or whatnot like you're in a situation where you can't you're not sure if you'll make more money in 10 years or not. Like that's, I'm banking on, hopefully I'll be able to do that, but I don't know. You kind of go nope. forward in faith, but it's, it is a tricky scenario that way. At least I see it. You're correct. You are correct. And, uh, and that, that is completely deliberate as well. You know, oh, this, for sure. this, 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 this doesn't come, this doesn't come by accident either. Yep. <laughs> also, you know, the, uh, and this, this also has to do with the, the entire women's liberation movement as well where the idea is that women need to be in the workforce. Yeah. And why? Well, it's because, uh, you know, again, the kind of rhetoric that's used is it's because we want women to be all that they can be. And we want them to be equal contributing members of society. And we want them to be on the same level as men and all of these things, all these, these very high sounding uh, ideas and uh, and motivations which have nothing to do with the real purpose for this happening, which is uh, more people to pay taxes, more people to contribute to uh, government programs, 
uh, if women are in the workforce, more power for the government as the government is entrusted with the care of children. Uh, smaller leads to smaller families as well as women want to have less children and and uh, and people people no longer can live the, the life to which we have been accustomed on a single salary. Yeah, yeah. Very all of these, all of these, it's a, it's like a giant web where all of these things go together. Yeah, yeah. I know it's it's but, a yeah, big your, problem. Your, your point, your point is well, your point is well taken. Yeah. Because, because it is it is a challenge and it is it is probably well definitely more of a challenge than it was say in the 1970s or 1960s mm-hmm. you you really have to like wrestle with that i think as as young people and young young parents young couples like if if we're going to go down this road and unless you have you know upsize income potential uh if you're just an average person you make an average money working an average job uh you're gonna have to definitely be like fine if you're going to go the route of having like let's say seven eight kids something like that it's going to be a quality of life downgrade compared to what you were used to growing up most likely which is tough to take yeah well it depends on how you define quality of life well that's fair that's fair that's a fair point yeah but uh yeah you'll have less uh disposable income let's let's put it that correct yeah yeah i think that's a better way of putting it probably that's fair no no, that's fair that's a bit of propaganda sneaking into my vocabulary so (laughs) keep keep me on guard that's good critical i like like it okay so we are yeah we're gonna run up on time here uh quickly maybe let's hit because we should end off with a positive note about how we can what we can do but maybe let's hit uh environmentalism uh that movement earth day and then we'll hit transhumanism and then we'll kind of wrap it up okay Okay, sorry. Right. So, go, so go, little, yeah, yeah. So a little bit about about the environmental about the the environmental movement. And I I have a chapter about the environmental movement uh, in the book. One of the things that we we need to be we need to be good stewards of creation, and I think I think that that almost should go without saying for us as Christians. We're not we're not people who are here to get the maximum out of this earth and rape and pillage and uh, you know destroy the the environment. We should be of all people the people who care the most about being good stewards and developing God's creation according to his will and for his glory and for, and for the benefit of, and, and for the benefit of the human race as well. And ultimately that means caring for what, what has been given to us. So when I, when I speak strongly against the environmental movement, I'm not saying that we as Christians should not care for the environment because of all people, we should be the most, uh, the most caring for this world that God has given to us, this beautiful creation. But what I think we we really need to understand is again where the environmentalist movement comes from, and the environmentalist movement is again the product of the elites, the the societal elites, the power elites, the financial elites of this world. We can look at it. We can look at the the modern outworking of this. In uh, in what we see with the the entire climate change industry, uh, the entire climate change message, the message of of carbon reduction. Uh, you know, we are we are carbon based beings. So if we want to get rid of carbon, we need to get rid of humans. Uh, and uh, the the idea that this is our this is our our besetting problem, and we need to we need to in, start carbon pricing, and we need to start all of these these kinds of programs to uh, undo 
the uh, the environmental problems that we're facing, the the imminent doom that we're facing. So that's the most recent iteration of this, but it goes back in its modern in its modern, you know, again, it's it's modern incarnation, you could say. The environmentalist movement really sees its roots in the late 1960s or in the 1960s, and then and then coming to uh, its bloom in 1970 with the first Earth Day. Mm-hmm. And the first Earth, in, 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 and you know, we think of Earth Day. Perhaps those of us who are on the conservative side of the spectrum, we think of Earth Day as this liberal, horrible, socialist, hippie, you know, nasty thing where people want to get rid of industry and they, you know, they're they're uh, tree huggers and all this stuff. Uh, and and a lot of environmentalists want to uh, proclaim the environmental movement as this grassroots movement, which it never was. The environmentalist movement was never a grassroots movement, and it was always the uh, the brainchild of big business and industry, uh, the the oil the oil industry, the international oil industry, the international banks, uh, the again the financial power, intellectual elites working together with this agenda in mind. And if you look at the history of the first Earth Day, you can see it, and it goes on and it goes on from there. And again, there's there's all these connections. And that's that's why I speak about the 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 web or how all of these things work together: population control, environmentalism, uh, you know, all of these various movements working uh, working together and being being different sides of the same point, you could say. Mm-hmm. It's very profitable so, to, to have that going. Oh, that, yeah, well, absolutely, is- Ab- absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a you know the uh, the the big green uh, green movement is uh, produces a lot of green as well for people. Yes. If you're if you're if you're positioned in the right in the right place. If you're Al Gore. Yeah. yeah well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Al Gore is one of the examples that I speak about in the book, and the example of Al Gore is just it's incredible. Yeah. When you see where where he came from, and where he is now, and uh, and how he went from being a career politician to being an advisor and. Uh, multinational corporations and to being the uh, the producer of the inconvenient truth the the big uh, global warming documentary and just just let, making that really hit the public and uh, and what he has personally gained out of that is uh, is immense you know his uh, his financial and in uh, power gains in these things so you know Al Gore there are many other examples as well in the environmental movement so what what that leads me to when when we think about okay where the rubber hits the road uh for us as christians okay so so great so we know that this is some kind of uh you know to, to put it in the crudest possible terms this is a this is a giant scam okay so what do we do what is it so what what does this mean for us uh well it it means that we need well i think we, first of all it means that we need to again cast a skeptical eye on the the kind of reporting that we hear, the kind of messages that we are being led to swallow, the the doomsday scenarios that are being outlined for us and have been outlined for to for us for decades, uh, we need to cast a skeptical eye on these things. We need to be critical consumers of the information that we receive. We need to look at various sides of the issues, and we need to that in our own, you know, in our own situations, we need to follow again. God's creation mandates. Mm. Not be yep. not be sucked not be sucked in 
by these false and dangerous and and ultimately pagan movements, which are being used uh, by those with a greater agenda, an agenda often to uh, achieve more power. And if yeah. you look at th- if you look at things like the United Nations Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030, uh, and all of all of those kinds of things, they use the environmental movement among other things for their own purposes. Yeah. Just to get some clarity on that, so the movement, I think what you're calling the movement itself and the, and the people who use it for their purposes, that is a scam. Uh, but the problem with any any good scam or whatnot is there's always a grain of truth inside of it. Uh, well, I like like uh, on the issue of climate change specifically, like from my understanding, and we did an episode on this a while back too, with Cal Beisner, but I've also seen others like Bjorn Lomberg and whatnot. It is a problem, but it's one problem of many. And it is nowhere near the problem that it is being made out to be. Is that a fair understanding? Well, I, 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 would, I, I would agree with that. And I think one of the things that ends up happening is that with all of the focus, like, like all of the focus recent recent years has been on carbon and carbon dioxide and carbon emissions and very much less focus or little focus on uh, things like water pollution. And, uh, you know, uh, dioxins or cancer causing chemicals or other things that that big industry is also causing serious problems with the environment Mm -hmm. or, you know, the production of mountains of garbage or, you know, where, you know, garbage is being shipped to different parts of the world. So so all of those things are, are, you know, if you if you pay enough in carbon offsets. You can continue to do all of these things. Yeah, it's you know, a modern day like, indulgence. Yeah, well, exactly. You pay your indulgence, and then you can take your private jet. You can go to your international meeting in Davos without feeling any guilt. But the little yep. guy, the little guy, isn't allowed to do it anymore. Yeah. So, so Bill Gates can do it, and he and he says that himself recently in an interview. He said that, well, I you know I pay my carbon offsets. Well, I can't pay my carbon carbon offsets. So does does that mean I can't fly anymore? Yeah. So, but but there, yeah. and so there are other problems, you know. When you see, just in terms of you think of you think of well, God created this world beautiful, right? We live in a beautiful world, and how man can make the world so ugly, and that includes cities, where you know cities are not, you know, in so many ways they have become places of uh, where beauty is completely lacking. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, you think about Revelation. In Revelation, the, 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 the eschatological endpoint is this garden city. Well, we, we think of paradise in terms of just a garden or perhaps a wild space. And so what ends up happening is you have these, these islands of pristine perfection, you know, a national park where nobody's allowed to set foot. And then you have these horrible, ugly, nasty places that are, you know, the, the sprawling suburbs or whatever, where everything looks the same and, and uh, there's no individuality. And, and, you know, those things are all environmental concerns as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, and, and in terms of growing uh, rates of cancer, what's, co- you know, what, what's causing that? Why, why, why are so many people uh, getting cancer? What, what, what kind of chemicals are we putting into our bodies? What kind of foods are we eating? What kind of chemicals are being used in agricultural production? 
what kind of pesticides are we using to levels that are unsustainable? All of those kinds of questions. Totally, totally. Okay. So there's a so, lot more than just carbon. Oh, I know. It's a it's a big problem. It is a big yeah. problem. Okay. And there's no, and there and there's no denying that. Yeah. But I think but I think the problem is, and the problem that we need to see is that is that the movement, you know, itself has has so much uh or or so little to offer to actually make things better. Yeah. It's a lot of just rhetoric. It's not yeah. actual there's no yeah. it's it's environmentalism, it's not con uh conservation. Like there's no actual tangible yeah. like we're gonna take this well, exactly. habitat and improve it, or we're gonna open up yeah, access over exactly. here or, or clean up the ocean yeah. or yeah, there's a million yeah. ways to be to do it tangible. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay, so we're gonna be we're running up against the clock here. So I think uh, where we're gonna leave it is there is a chapter in your book on transhumanism. It is yes. interesting and fascinating, and I think people should definitely go read it. Um, but I think for the sake of time, we'll kind of enter into like the the, uh, the close up portion of this podcast, the concluding portion, and we'll kind of tell people, um, knowing all this, knowing there are these forces at work, uh, knowing that the elites do want to use uh, well, us and, and the rest of humanity for their purposes because they crave power, because they worship the God of self. What do we do knowing all this? What are, what are some tangible steps we can do uh, both, you know, as individuals, as members of your church, as, as parents, grandparents, like how then shall we live in, in, in light of all yeah. this that we've discussed? Yeah. And that's, that's uh, the last chapter of the book. <clears throat> in the last chapter of the book, I give a list of, uh, a number of suggestions of the, the kinds of things that we can do to not just fortify ourselves against these things, but also to fight back against them. And I think I think one of the one of the key issues, and I'm not going to get into each each one of the. I don't have the list in front of me of the the. I think it's uh, it's 19 suggestions, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'm not going to get into each individual part of that list, but I think one of the things that we need to consider is our own particular sphere of influence. Because oftentimes, you know, having a podcast, and I'm sure you get the same thing, you get a lot of messages, uh, individual messages from people who listen to the podcast. And, and one of the questions that I get most often is, well, what can we do? What can I do to change it? Uh, you know, what can I do to, to make sure that this doesn't happen? Well, my answer is, there may be nothing that you can do to change it as an individual. To, to make an impact on a worldwide level, because you're just a little person in, the, in, in a great big world. Uh, for most of us, we don't have a lot of power. We don't have a lot of influence. Uh, we don't have a huge sphere of influence in our life. And we're not, uh, we're not loaded down with money with, that we can use to, to buy that kind of influence. So we need to work, and we should, we should work joyfully within our own sphere of influence and, and know that in that sphere of influence, we can make a huge difference. So think locally, first of all, and think on the local level. And when we think about government, we often think about you know, national government or, or state government. But locally, being involved locally on a political level uh, is extremely important. But even, even not even getting to that political level is on the level of ourselves and our families. And fortifying and strengthening our families, fortifying and strengthening our churches, uh, resolving to live deliberately as God's covenant community, 
and not as isolated, atomized individuals in our society. I think that's extremely important because I think one of the one of the doctrines, one of the teachings that we should never neglect is the doctrine of the covenant and how we are God's covenant people and how God placed us and created us in his image to, to live as a reflection of who our triune God is. And, and to be that light to the world simply by living deliberately uh, as God's people in the public eye. Okay, so, so we need to think locally or act locally, uh, you know, in terms of the, the, the bigger picture. We, we may not have a global influence. Uh, and, you know, that's okay. Because one of the, and another one of the things that we need to think of is that God wants us to be faithful. He doesn't want us to make a difference. Uh, he wants us to be faithful. So regardless of the impact or the, the change that's worked by our faithfulness, uh, we're called to do it. And so we may not see results in our lifetime. And we may work towards certain things and we may not see it. But if we're faithful to what God has commanded us to do and what he expects from us, then that will be blessed. And so we need, mm -hmm. to, we need to work with that idea. Mm -hmm. And some of the other the other things, very practical things that, that I believe that all of us as Christians should be doing, understanding especially the pernicious nature of big tech, especially. And just to, just to give some very practical examples, is and, and and big data. Because a lot of I think a lot of people lack an understanding of the importance of our data to this entire, you know, global. Uh, agenda or globalist agenda. The fact that our data is being collated and used and is being put together, uh, you know, we see it most recently in, in uh, the development of chat GPT, the, the whole AI thing. That, that's, that's, all, that's all the result of a massive data gathering project. It's not artificial intelligence in, in, in the, the real sense of the term. But it's just the result of a, a, a tremendously powerful algorithm that has mountains of data at its fingertips, you know, its virtual fingertips. Yep. And so each time that we willingly use a free service on the internet where we think it's free, it's not really free. It's uh, our data. That we are actually the product. And so mm. ultimately, that's, uh, ultimately, that's what we need to realize. So we need to, I, I think, I encourage Christians in particular to think about what kind of data we're sharing and how we're contributing or feeding the beast, yep. uh, which, you know, which is, the, which is the beast of data gathering and, and the beast of, uh, uh, you know, that, that data collation and data use. So we need to think very carefully about that. Totally. So that's totally. Just, just one, pra just one practical uh, way in which we can do that and we, in, in, that we could work and also working to be, not be as dependent on, the the societal structures as we have been and to be to become more independent or interdependent yeah. as as god's people and uh, and as as the world as society becomes more and more uh, as it becomes more and more difficult you know at least in in this generation to uh to live in a christian way more challenging uh, we need to rely on our brothers and sisters. We need to support our brothers and sisters as well and, and create alternative economies. So a, a, as much as possible, use the skills of our brothers and sisters. We have, a, we have the perfect 
kind of community that God has put us in for us to use. So we need to we need to we need to think in that way, in that in that community oriented way as well, just in very practical ways. Totally. Yeah, just just building up those those mediating institutions like we talked about, especially Absolutely. the church and the family. That's where you can have yeah. a big impact. Yeah. Okay. All That's very good. Correct. Wonderful. Okay. Well, I think uh, we'll bring it to a close. This has been fantastic. Uh, there's still so much more to discuss. Uh, people. Oh, I know on... we. Did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we we didn't get through a, a lot of it, but uh, I think we covered a lot. So we, we did. It was, yeah. it was very good. Yes, definitely. Well, if people are interested, uh, they can go buy your book. Uh, can you tell people where to go buy your book? Uh, one of the places where you can uh, get it, and probably the best place for you to go look, is uh, go to my website, www.dan1132.com. So www.dan1132.com. And, uh, and get in touch with, uh, with me. Uh, and uh, leave a message on the the contact form there. So there's a there's a, a the hardcover version of the book is available for fifteen dollars, and there's also the audiobook, which is also available, uh, read by the read by the author. Uh, which Very is nice. So that's uh, and that's available for ten bucks. Okay, and, and okay. can they so, get the the audiobook on your website as yes. well? Okay, yeah. wonderful. Not part of so Amazon though, as you don't want to feed the beast. I don't want to feed the beast, so it's not available on Amazon. So, yes. and and the thing is, I'm also not on Facebook for the same reason, mm-hmm. and so that actually, uh, and I'm also not on yet on uh, excuse me on on YouTube for the same reason. I know this video is going to go up on YouTube, right? Yeah. So and uh, which is a good thing. I mean, I think it's it's good to uh, to reach as many people as you can. But automatically, what you're doing if you avoid these uh, these uh, these these arms of the octopus. Uh, you limit your reach, which is unfortunate. So, yep. Well, I think, we'll, yeah, I think, I think we'll have to look at honestly switching to Rumble. I think that seems to be a bit of a trend, and hopefully, uh, audiences will migrate over there as well. So, yeah, stay tuned for yeah, that. Yeah, Rumble is, uh, Rumble's really growing. So, it's good. 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 Awesome. Well, Pastor Jim, thank you for your time. It's been real talk. It's been, uh, it's been my pleasure. Hopefully, your pleasure as well. And, uh, yeah, till next time. Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank, thanks very much for having me. It was, uh, there a lot, a lot to say, a lot to talk about. It was very good to talk with you. Wonderful. Okay, people. Well, let us know what you think. Until next time, keep having real talk. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfleur, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamaga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.